0: to mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman.
0: And I'm Louise Palanker.
1: MediaPath is your portal to pop culture, your curator of the best in arts and entertainment, and a great hangout for some of the most interesting people in their particular field. Today, our guest provided the driving force, the backbeat behind two of the ass-kickingest bands ever to rattle the windows of the world, Bad Company <laughs> and Free. He's drummer Simon Kirk, and Simon's gonna join us in a couple of minutes. We're very excited about it. Weezy, what do you have today?
0: I'm so excited. All right, I watched a documentary series on HBO Max called Smartless on the Road. So Jason Bateman, Will Arnett and Sean Hayes have a podcast that they call Smartless. It's three funny and gifted men talking to each other and to a guest who is booked by one in a surprise to the others. The podcast is such a hit, they took it on the road and filmed their adventures, which take off as they board a private jet and Jason Bateman begins intimately discussing body functions, (laughs) fuel going in, waste coming out, and the timing of said events within the framework of showering and associated ablutions. This train of thought is not any classier in black and white. But hang in. The relationship shared by these three is adorable. I'm not going to tell you that Jason moves on from that topic. He does not. But the secret guests... Okay, begin singing loudly if you'd rather be surprised. The secret guests, Conan O'Brien, Matt Damon, <laughs> David Letterman, AOC, pod bombed by Bradley Cooper. It's pretty fantastic. The series is six episodes in which we watch our heroes check into hotels, sample some local culture... Order food, eat food, mock each other's food selections, consider how and when this food may be digested, and welcome devoted audiences as they record their shows live in Boston, New York, Brooklyn, D.C., Madison, and Chicago. If you've had enough of cooking shows and are ready for a show that considers what ultimately happens to the cooked food, this is your jam right here. I'm teasing the show with love, as is the style of these three engaging guys. Finally, in episode four, they sincerely discuss their childhoods and their respective challenges, and we come to better understand why entree salads are so important to Jason Bateman. Oh, and Sean Hayes can really play the piano. His sister Tracy is darling, and Will Arnett is sweet and loving to his adorable kids. Smartless on the Road is on Max, and you can also find it on Prime.
1: So... One of my good friends just came back from New York where they did several shows on Broadway and said the greatest Broadway show they have ever seen was Goodnight Oscar, where Sean Hayes plays Oscar Levant and at the end plays the entire Rhapsody in Blue on the piano because he's a gifted pianist and they said it was spectacular. Now, it's over now, whether it gets extended or whether they put it on the road and it comes to the Pantages or something. No,
0: our Henry Winkler said the same thing on Twitter. Oh, did he? Yes, just raved, over the top.
1: Yeah, he said it. Sean these Hayes people, Unbelievable. So talented. All right, I'm going to talk about a book called The Breach. It's right here in front of me. It's the untold story of the January 6th investigation. It's by Denver Riggleman, Now, if you're a political junkie like Weezy and I are, you're going to love this book. The author was a former Republican congressman from the 5th District of Virginia. He also spent two decades as an intelligence officer and a national security advisor. He was appointed as senior technical advisor to the Jan Six committee. He's a techie. So none of the revelations in this book are his or anybody else's opinion it's all data based and that's what makes it scary his main sources were various law enforcement databases he reveals unpublished text from key congressional leaders including mark meadows he details communications from the trump white house even during that eight hour period on jan 6 when they weren't supposed to be having any communications from the outside all the jan six questions aren't answered here it's just a fascinating additional bit of information for you a lot of time was spent painstakingly connecting phone numbers with people on encrypted calls. That was part of the mystery. They, they got these texts, but they didn't know who they were from. And his job was to connect them to an actual human. You're going to come away. With the goosebump-inducing theory that according to research and fact patterns, America has become a growing, militant, Christian, nationalist movement being fueled by disinformation. Riggleman was the first government official to shine a light on QAnon. You're going to love this book, Wheezy. It's really good. It's scary, but it's good.
0: Wow. It sounds like it's confirming all my fears.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the point. Yeah. All right, now, uh, we got a, an amazing guest today. Simon Kirk is a blues and rock artist and a songwriter. He was the hard drumming provider of momentum behind the band Free, with a mega hit, Oh, right now. And that band morphed... To, I know, that was bad.
0: It's, it's a little better when Simon sings it. I
1: know. it, And the band morphed into a super group that always made you drive your car too fast. <laughs> bad company with hit after hit, like can't get enough of your love, feel like, like uh, making love, rock and roll fantasy, if you need somebody, moving on, young blood, Good Loving Gone Bad. He also toured three times with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band, which has been the gathering of some of the most talented players in rock and roll for a long time. Welcome, Simon. We're so good to have you here today. Hey, guys. It's good to be here. Thank you so much for talking with for us. For having me on.
0: Yeah, your room looks awesome.
1: Listen, you uh, blues and R and B lit the music fire for you, and, yeah. and 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 Paul Rogers too. And so you guys were a match made in heaven. You you've got the same DNA sort of, and and, and just to uh, to recognize Paul before we get into your biography he has one of the most recognizable voices in rock history. As a matter of fact, Rolling Stone magazine ranked Paul Rogers as the number 55 of the top 100 greatest singers of all time. That's not just a rock singer, that's all singers of all time. And he was just an astonishing voice in front of you guys. Talk about the start of Free with Paul in about 1970, and how did it get kicked off?
2: Well, it was actually 1968 that we... We got together, but just going back uh, a little bit, I, I mean, I would put Paul way up, you know, I'm ne- I've never been a big fan of Rolling Stone's polls. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I won't go, you know, I, I don't want to get into it, but you know, it's all um, subjective, but um, I mean, if you ask any modern singer, regardless of their genre, where Paul would rank um, you know, they would say he's he's probably in the top three or five of of their choices. So I put him way up. I I put him in the top ten. Um but that's only my opinion. He is a wonderful singer, great guy and a good friend. Um so free started in mid nineteen sixty eight, believe it or not, my God, uh 50, 55 years ago. And I, I'd i come down from Shropshire, which is on the border of Wales, uh, and the, the border of England and Wales. I'd been given two years by my parents to try and make a go at this music career that they were not too crazy about me following. And I, I, I scrubbed around in London for several months doing menial jobs. And I, I tossed a coin, believe it or not. I, heard about this band called black cat bones which is way across the other side of london which is a huge city so for me to go from where i was to see this band was a big deal in like an hour on the subway so when i got there um uh there was, the band were okay they weren't great but they, they were pretty good but the guitarist was amazing a little fella paul kossoff and uh long story short i i joined the band and we You know, I was in a semi-pro band. We went all over England playing clubs. And Paul took me aside one day and said, listen, I've just jammed in secret, don't tell the others, with this guy called Paul Rogers across town. He's in another band. He wants to leave his band, which was called uh, Brown Sugar. And he wants to form a band with me. Would you like to, you know, play drums? I said, I'd love to, because I really like Paul. I love his playing. Paul Kossoff. There are two Pauls. So we went to meet Paul Rogers. And um, he was amazing. I mean, from the right out of the gate, this voice, he was my age, he, I'm six months older than him. So we were 19. And he had this voice coming out of a, like a 50 year old black blues guy, Seriously, uh, he played great harp right mouth harp and he played great guitar. He was he really ticked all the boxes. And um, really, that was the start of free. We we got a bass player, uh, Andy Fraser, and uh, and within our first rehearsal, we clicked so well, the four of us together, that by the end of two hours of rehearsing in this little pub, uh, we'd written several songs and we'd we'd gotten such a, an amazing empathy between the four of us. It was really uncanny. And uh, then Alexis Corner, who was a sort of godfather of the British blues scene, he he was like a mentor to Andy Fraser. And he popped in, he was going to a gig of his own, and he popped in to see how we were getting on. And he was stunned. He said, wow, this sounds so good. Um, and then we said, well, you know, what, on earth, what what do we call ourselves? We didn't know what to call ourselves. And, he, and Alexis says, well, I uh, I was in a band with Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker called uh, Free at Last. Well, you can't use Free at Last. How about Free? And we said, yeah, okay, sounds good. Wow. So that really was the beginning of, of Free.
1: And Paul said that it, one of his great influences
2: was Otis Redding. And when you listen to his oh, voice, yeah. you just hear Otis Redding all over his voice. Yeah. In fact, that's uh, um, one of my favorite all-time Favorite albums is Otis Blue, and and that was one of Paul's. We we have very very similar uh, musical tastes. O- Otis Blue is like wow. Mm-hmm. First time I heard Otis Redding, like wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, he's he's a huge influence. And his drummer was Al Jackson Jr. And he's still to this day uh, is my number one influence. Was uh, he a
1: Stax record performer?
2: Yeah. Yeah, he was in the Stax House band, mm-hmm. uh, Booker T yep. and the MGs. Mm-hmm. And that was Booker T on keyboards, Steve Crocker on guitar, Duck Dunn on bass, and Al Jackson Jr. on drums. And the and Blues were, Brothers
1: band as well. Yeah. Those guys were, were amazing.
0: Was your childhood in, infused with blues influences like a lot of other British artists who kind of brought the blues back to America?
2: Well, Not at all. Mm. In fact, totally the opposite. I never really heard of the blues until uh, I went back to London. You know, I was born and raised in London, and then we moved to the country from... So from when I was about 7 to 17, I lived in this very remote part of England, and we just had a little transistor radio, no electricity, no running water. I mean, it was really a Spartan existence. And the only... The only music that I heard was from a, a, a station called Radio Luxembourg, mm-hmm. which was broadcast from Luxembourg, you know, between Belgium and France, mm-hmm. a tiny country, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they played a lot of American music, um, and w- which I didn't really know much about because obviously there was no internet. I couldn't Google. I mean, I just heard these amazing sounds, but really, it was the advent of the Beatles when they came along in '63. A year later, they hit uh, America. But in '63, um, "Please Please Me" came out, the album, and on it was um, a couple of uh, Tamla Motown songs, which I've never heard of. What the hell's Tamla Motown? But bottom line, no, I, I, I got, um, I got a blue sampler album just before I, I moved back down to London, with about 12 or 13 different blues songs on it. And it was, what I loved about the blues, it was so simple. It was just a guy and a guitar, you know, and very a, a very sort of Spartan band. And I loved the simplicity of, of, of blues, but I never really cottoned onto it. Until I went back to London, and um, we met Alexis, Alexis Corner, who turned us on to uh, blues artists like Muddy Waters and and Howling Wolf, mm-hmm. Johnny Hooker, and and that's when I got a this love affair with with the blues and soul. You know, yeah. blues and soul were to me the the sort of holy grail. Mm-hmm. All thanks to the Beatles, I have to say, uh, the Beatles and the Stones. I, I think really, if it hadn't been for those two bands uh black music w- w- would not have hit the shores of england like it did because no one had really heard of any of these artists until the beatles and the stones uh, championed them if you will
0: well liverpool being a port town they were getting in their they were getting an influx off the ships for the sailors in the record shops yeah, yeah sure. and
1: about that exact point, I was just going to say, Weezy, I opened for John Mayall one time. We did a fun oh, so yeah, long yeah. after the Blues Breakers, but he still does recording in his house. And he said, "I said, what is it? Why, why do we have to be embarrassed by the fact that Clapton and Zeppelin and all these blues-based the, the Stones are guys that had to reintroduce American teenagers to their own music?" And he said, "Well." He said in post World War II London and the south of England, because the economy hadn't corrected itself yet, there was a lot of poverty, they were still bombed out, they were rebuilding the buildings. Somehow, this music and the desperation in American blues music resonated with the London kids. And so, not only musically, but just theme wise, it really seemed to resonate with them.
2: Ah, that's very interesting. Yeah, well, John Mayle, I mean, yep. the other godfather. And and really, between John Mayle and Alexis Corney, you had this sort of finishing school <laughs> of a whole brace of, of people who are now very famous, or even maybe they passed away. But it was a whole, you know, college of, um, you know, Mick Taylor, Eric Clapton, you know, Jack Bruce, and. uh You had uh, Ginger Baker, you had Charlie Watts, Mm -hmm. and there was Long John Baldry. That was the the triumvirate would be (laughs) male Baldry and um, the other guy.
1: Well, you had two (laughs) monster hits with Free: "All Right Now" and "Wishing Well." And went on to sell like 20 million albums before you were through. But you're, you're getting traction took a minute with free, right? You had released two records or something before folks started to recognize you. And then you did the Isle of Wight Festival in front of 600,000 yeah. people and stuff blew up.
2: Well, we, you know, we had a, um, a couple of years of just slogging around the circuit, uh, particularly in England. And, you know, England's a very small country. I love telling people that you can actually take England and fit it into Lake Superior.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you shouldn't try.
2: You shouldn't try. You get a lot lot of English people very wet. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a geographical fact. England is very, very small. Uh, But if you combine it with with Scotland and Wales, you know, you get the United Kingdom. And we slogged around that circuit and a little foray into uh, Europe um particularly holland and germany but our main stomping ground was was england and we went around that that little country for for two years getting a sort of a fan base um and and playing primarily our own version of the blues we did a few standards we did like rock me baby and crossroads and but but we really wanted to play our own songs uh and and um all Right Now it came from a, a, a very b- a bad gig. Basically it was, uh, we, we didn't go down very well. And we had a certain, uh, a, a sort of, um, mid tempo thing with us, you know, <laughs> it wasn't really something that you could dance to It was something that you could bop along to. But uh, after this particularly desultory gig, we got back in the dressing room. We said, you know, we need a, we need a fucking ah, something <laughs> that everyone can dance to. And um, Andy came up on the spot with, you know, all right, now, baby. Yeah. And, and he was born in that little dressing room in the north of England.
0: Wow. But it sounds like you guys have put in your 10,000 hours so that when you had your hit, you're ready to go.
2: Yeah, I look, the, the whole thing about slogging around the country together in a little van, uh, it just bonded you. I mean, we were really, uh, at our height, I think Free was really one of the best bands ever. Uh, but there's only four of us, but we, we played so well together. We always said there was a fifth member <laughs> on the night when, when we were sort of levitating with whatever. And... Um, most of our gigs before All Right Now were really, really amazing. And um, we, we, particularly in the north of England and we, we, we gathered this pretty amazing fan base. Um, and, and then when All Right Now hit, you know, it was a sort of a double-edged sword really, because it was the culmination, of uh these two years it doesn't sound very long two years of getting it all together but in that two years we probably played five or six hundred shows i would say nearer 600 shows so uh and then all right now hit. and then instead of playing a different town every night we were playing a different country every night talk about the isle of Wight experience that's the legendary Well, place. We, not many people know that we did two Isle of whites um the the first one was in 68, uh, no, I beg your pardon, 69, I've got to get it right. And we were just sort of a, a, one of the opening acts, but it, it was, wow, I mean, that was something. But the next year, All Right Now had been a big hit. And uh, it, this was where our manager, Chris Blackwell, from Island Records, uh, managed to get us on this amazing lineup. It was Saturday night the second night of the three nights. And it was a huge bill. And he said, you know, I've got you in. You've got half an hour. Well, we got there. We flew by helicopter from the hotel. It was most amazing to look down and see this moving carpet of hundreds of thousands of people. The estimate was, uh, you know, about six 600.
1: Yeah, 000. I mean, they talk about Woodstock at 350. The Isle of Wight's banging five,
2: <laughs> 600,000 people every year. Holy yeah. God. Well, you know, the advice that I was given uh, was to play to the first two rows of people. No, That's all. No, no, back in those days, there was no monitors. Oh, there were my. no monitors. You just played from the PA that was angled a little bit in towards us. Oh, so we had no monitors. I mean, people do uh, 50-seater clubs now with a whole bank of <laughs> monitors. It's, it's That's incredible. Um And in so, ears. And, and in ears, Yeah. yeah. So, so we got there about three o'clock. I think we were due to go on at five. We got there at three and of course it was chaos and we were all nervous. We drank a little bit, smoked a little bit, you know, and then it got get pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. And to by, by by eight o'clock, we were a little stoned. We were a little out of it. And they, and Chris looked at us and he said, you know what guys, you're not going on. You're not going on tonight. We said, fuck, really? He said, "No, no, you're going to go on tomorrow," and it was one of the best things he ever did because even though we were disappointed, uh, it, when when we finally left the show, um, we heard later on that uh, it didn't finish till nearly three in the morning. Sly and the Family Stone went on at one thirty and played for an hour and a half, and they were due to go on at ten. Wow! So you can you can see what what a what a mess it was, and. So we flew back to the hotel, got up early in the morning. The next morning, Sunday, came back out to a beautiful, sunny Sunday morning, and we went on. I believe around noon or twelve thirty, and it was it was a wonderful. I mean, it was scary as hell uh, because Paul Paul Kostov's amp didn't work for twenty seconds, and then you know there was feedback and so on and so forth. But ultimately it was a wonderful show and it really put us on the map especially when we played all right now because people were like yeah I love this song and it really vaulted us um catapulted us to public attention You've benefited from some good
1: management you had Chris Blackwell and then bad mm. company had Peter Grant who was Led yeah. Zeppelin's manager who was also brilliant at marketing and
2: doing everything Correct yeah, well, you had two different blokes who were, you know, poles apart in terms of personality, uh, and getting and how things were done. Chris was called the babyface killer back in the day. <laughs> he was a great-looking guy, I know, uh, but a, a very acute business brain, um, very personable. I mean, he he was always ready to listen to you, and and he was almost almost like part of the group. He was so nice. Um but behind that lovely facade was this the acute an axe murder. I got you. <laughs> Well in, in,
1: in, in, you, as you as you mentioned, you free was not together that long, seventy to seventy three or
2: sixty-eight to seventy three. Sixty eight to seventy two, really. Um we had a little resurgence. About five years. Yeah. yeah five. And then you and Paul went to
1: start bad company and you were joined by some other really storied players you had guitarist Mick Ralphs from Mott the Hoople yeah. all the young dudes one of the most interesting and iconic songs of the 60s yeah. and 70s and bassist Boz Burrell of
2: King Crimson so it really was kind of a supergroup it was uh, it, it wasn't our intention for it to be a supergroup but, but because of b- blind faith this new phrase had been banded around you know blind faith was eric Eric Clapton, Steve Winwood, and Ginger Baker. So, you know, oh, super group. Um, but you know, press like to have a little step up on how to launch something. So we were we became this this super group. And it, it was um it was a perfect storm. I mean, we we were kind of veterans, having been around for five or six years in our various bands. The three bands were very well known. Um, and we sort of shrugged off the, all the drink and drugs uh, that had um, permeated Free, particularly with Paul Kossoff. I mean, Free would have been a lot bigger and a lot more well known in America uh, had Paul Kossoff received the treatment that that he should have received. Um, uh, we you know we cancelled two tours. We were we you know Paul's drug use really hampered the band in, in many, many ways. So to to get with uh, Mick Ralphs, who was a lovely guitarist and such a great guy, funny. I love him to this day, uh, even though he's he's been laid low with a, a stroke. You know, he's incapacitated. Boz passed away about 12 years ago, unfortunately, but he was a great bass player. And, and it was just a meeting, uh, a perfect meeting of the minds. And then, of course, Peter Grant... Uh, who managed the biggest band at the time, which was Zeppelin, and it was fortuitous in that he said, "Well, we are launching a, a label called Swan Song, which is going to be Led Zeppelin's own label, and we would like you to be, you know, you know, on that label."
1: You were the so, first. You were the uh, first burned band to, uh, other than Zeppelin to be on that label. Yeah.
2: yeah. <clears throat> and so, and and they to do things in only the way that Led Zeppelin could do. They had a huge launch party in the Four Seasons in in New York, and then they had another one in the Beverly Hills Hilton in L.A., and the press was everywhere, and, of course, we were trotted out as, you know, the new band on Led Zeppelin's new label. And we just we took off. I mean, it was a wonderful launch. We We could do no wrong.
1: It was mentioned that there was a lot of pressure because you were you were going to represent the success of the label along with the success of yourself there. So it was a lot of pressure when you first.
2: I never thought of it like that. But yeah. But look, we were we were well equipped. We had this we've been rehearsing these 10 or 12 songs for ages and we we had a, a hell of a set. We were really primed. We were all in our mid, uh, mid to yeah, mid twenties. We were just like greyhounds re- waiting to come out of the trap to go around the circuit. We were just rocking, and and when we 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 started out, uh, I believe we opened for Edgar Winter's White Trash.
1: Holy cow! We were
2: on, on the road with Edgar Winter, and um, without blowing our own horns, we kind of blew them off the stage every night. People were saying, "Who the hell is this?" And particularly paul who's a singer yeah. because we've got to remember we, we had a couple of paltry little tours with free but we never did a lot we became a musicians group but we didn't become you know a, a popular group in the literal term so paul's voice uh really you know and then the album went to i believe got to number one uh by the end of the tour bad Co. And uh, Peter Grant flew out to Boston. The final show was in the tea party in Boston. And um, we all, oh, Peter Grant's going, oh, wow. And he said, listen, you know, don't go on stage yet. And the lights had already gone down. You know, when the lights go down, the crowd goes nuts. And he says, and he starts his speech. We're going, Jesus Christ, (laughs) Peter, we got to get going. He says, no, no, let him wait. Come with me. And we went into another little room next to the dressing room and there on the table was a was was a, a sheet and the you know you can hear the people clapping Oh come on what are you doing and he whips back this uh, sheet and there's four platinum albums and uh, he said oh, you know this is what you know the, the days before the internet we had no idea how the album was doing and he said this is for all your hard work and uh, and they said now go and that was beautifully timed. That was his <laughs> <laughs> timing was quite... and we went out there and we just tore the place apart. Wow! What, what was the year of your first American tour? Uh, that would be seventy four. Mm-hmm.
0: And oh. you guys had more chart success in the states than you did in, in the UK.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. And what yeah, do you yeah.
0: What do you attribute that to?
2: We played a lot in America, and mm-hmm. you know, look, we. I, Most of our influences were American. Mm. And I think if you ask any musician of my age, my era, and they'll say, that you know, we, we love the old blues guys. We love the old, the guitarist, Chet Atkins, Jerry Reed, you know, Hendrix, even though Hendrix had to come to England to get famous. So when our stomping ground became America, Um, we love the American audiences. English audiences can be a little, uh, you know, I'm not denigrating them. It's just the way we are. We're a little like, okay, come on, impress me then. And as much as I love England and I love the English audiences, they can be pretty tough. Um, Americans know how to have a good time. Uh, (laughs) Always had done. And, um, we just ended up touring a lot in uh, you know in the states, and, and that's, that's how we got so popular. Tell yeah. the story about uh, I don't know if this is when you first
1: went to Swan and Peter took over your representation, but there was mm. a period of time when they wanted you to change your name or not they, they didn't want you to be bad company. they wanted you to be the heavy metal kids. Oh no, I, no, that was oh that my was a company, that was free. Uh, Holy <laughs> cow what a a horrible name that's like a parody of a rock
2: band sorry no um look you gotta remember that back in the late 60s you know you had bands like clouds and taste and yes (laughs) rather nebulous names you know you couldn't really put your finger on them so free was number one the promoters it drove from promoters and club owners mad because people would say, Oh, we're coming to see, It's not costing <laughs> me anything to come in, man. Come on. So they build us as the free, which is even worse. So anyway, when <laughs> we had our first meeting with Chris Blackwell and um the four of us. And Paul Kossoff and Andy pulled out a couple of cigars. I don't know what the hell they're doing, but big cigars, awful things. And this and 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 Chris sort of disregarded it but with a, a roll of the eyes and he said look the name not crazy about the name guys we are going oh shit here we go um it's it's not going to sell we're having a blowback from promoters and club owners we want you to change it heavy metal kids oh, God. Oh God. well Shut that me. went down like a hole in a parachute <laughs> i can tell you
1: Seriously. so
2: we said no we said no uh, we were, were sticking to it, inwardly quaking. So, and I'll never forget the word, he says, well, then we don't have a deal. Oh, boy. And so, okay. And there was this sort of stony silence. And the four of us, to a man, got up. Sort of said, well, thank you. And we sort of left the office. <laughs> We got out and closed the door and we said, What the fuck are we done? Have we done? <laughs> you know, this is Island Records, the, the best record company in England at the time. And Andy, Andy Fraser, you know, the de facto leader of the band, said, No. And he was right. He said, We're, we're, we're sticking to it. And so we left and we all went our various ways. And that same evening, Chris Blackwell called Andy and he said, You got a deal six months and with an option for us to, uh, you know, to pick up the option. We'll give you a one-album deal. We'll see how you do with six months of of work, and we'll we'll review after six months, and and the rest is history, you know. Wow. Heavy metal kids, that would have died a horrible death. It it, It would have been the punchline to a joke. Yeah. Oh,
0: well. well.
2: But I think it showed, apart from anything else, that there was a certain... um, solidity between the four of us that yeah, we were absolutely. sticking to our guns and um, we were gonna go on our own merit you know not some awful awful name
0: mm-hmm. yeah so uh, talk about your 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 struggles with addiction and how because you know you talk about being very disciplined initially in your career to prove to your yeah. parents I can make a go of this I, I'm the guy that's gonna get this done and mm-hmm. then once you knew that you were locked then maybe there's just a lot of temptation uh, in your line of work. Sure. Well, I,
2: addiction, look, my, both my parents drank very heavily, and I'm, I'm a true believer that, uh, and I've been in recovery a long time now, but I think addiction is inherited, it's passed down. My two brothers didn't get it, but I did. And um, I th- I think it is inherited. But somewhere around the late seventies, um, I discovered coke, and when I discovered coke, everything went crazy. And and you've got to remember that in that that uh, time of uh, the seventies, it almost almost became a currency. Coke was very very popular. Everyone was doing it, and of course it, it increased drinking. It increased. Uh, drug-taking to go to sleep or whatever. Then in the morning to get away from the the soporific uh, effects of Valium or anything that you took to go to sleep, you need another bump to wake up. And so the cycle started. So around about 79, 80, um, I I really got addicted to Coke and booze, you know, the the devil's uh, cocktail, as it were. And I, I really went crazy for, for about thirteen or fourteen years before I finally sought treatment. Uh, I tried treatment for alcoholism back in the mid '80s. It worked for mm, not long, you know, a couple of months maybe, and then I go back out. It, it's a bugger. It really is. I mean, to be an addict is it's a lifelong thing. Uh, you know, I'm addicted to. To things that make me feel good, whether it's fast cars, although I don't, not addicted to fast cars, but I'm saying that there's food, there's sex, there's... It's all endorphins. Say yeah. so again? It's all endorphins, you know. It's, it's all endorphins, the, the, the quest for endorphins. So, uh, and about that time, the late 70s, a Bad Company had been working incessantly for about six years. And we were all doing it. Although I have to say Paul Rogers stopped in nineteen seventy-six. Uh, he stopped doing coke and his drinking uh, you know, dissipated uh, because of that. And uh but me and Mick and Boz, we were we were buggers. And so it became this, you know, this thing that Luckily, I was always very fit. I was the fittest addict in the band. And I always worked out and did yoga and so on and so forth. But uh, that was always in the back of my mind. And I sought treatment for booze in 19, excuse me, 1981, I believe, my first trip to rehab. And um, it wasn't until Wow, about eight rehabs later, you know, my arrogance uh, kept me drinking and, and using that mm-hmm. I finally shrugged, you know, got rid of that monkey. And I, I go to meetings, you know, I go to online meetings, I'm on the board of uh, road recovery, and right turn, which help addicts, uh, teenage addicts, uh, is um, road recovery, we help kids. And uh, right turn it helps musicians and artists with addiction. So you know, I'm just giving back. To, and and to... you've written
1: a musical piece about it called Rock Bottom. Talk about yeah,
2: that. Yeah, I'm I'm collaborated with a, a guy named Woody Geesman, and Tony Viveiros, uh in Boston. And and Woody runs a runs a Right Turn, which is this rehab for um, for artistic people. And about 18 months ago, he sent me some songs. I didn't even know he he played. He's a drummer, he plays in a band called the Del Fuegos. And a very, very well known, very loved um, interventionist and counselor. And these songs were like, wow, man, they're really good. They just need a little bit of polishing. And so I went in my studio, which is behind me and got out the piano and, and guitar and started sort of polishing them. And we now have about 15 or 16 really good songs. And um, we're we're finishing the script. It's called Rock Bottom, and it's about uh, two, a, a man and a, a, a woman who fall in love, but they've got these monkeys on their backs called addiction. And it's uh, it's I can't wait for it to come out.
1: Well, I want to thank you for all the work you're doing, particularly for kids. I have it in my family. It's a scourge, and it is. and. um the thing about it is, uh, have you seen any of these shows? The, the latest one called Painkillers, which is about the Sackler family. And, yes, and, I have. And Matthew Broderick plays Richard Sackler. Yeah. Spectacular job, wasn't it? It was just so out of character. It wasn't the guy from uh, you know these comedies. It was so wonderful, and it's opening people's eyes. But we're in a really bad time with the opiates and fentanyl. And I, my my
2: son That's who has struggled since he was sixteen years old. Yeah, man. And I. I mean- I, I don't understand that the, the whoever's I believe it's the Chinese and with the Mexican, why put something that's going to kill your clientele? I never I never
1: got that. Precisely, um, it's like fifty times stronger than heroin. It's just awful. And yes, I, I, I and I, I I'm just so thankful that my son's still walking around. But it's a horrible mm-hmm. disease. My father was an alcoholic. His father was an alcoholic, and there's the mm-hmm. guilt that goes along with. Praying that you're not the one handing this genealogy down to your offshoot. I've been sober for 40 years, but never, wow. never was into drugs. I was into, I was a, a drinker. And uh, yeah. but uh, it, it's an awful thing, and I just I thank you for Road Recovery and Right Turn and what you're doing for kids. It's a mm-hmm. hard world, and it's so easy to be, you know, you can be addicted to to social media, the internet. There are so many things you can be addicted to now, uh, right. uh, which is it's a bad time.
2: Well, I'll take TikTok over a line of heroin
1: any day. <laughs> <laughs> <You're>, that's right. <laughs> There you go. Because there's no hangover from it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but you you discovered that music uh, creation actually Mm. can can help folks, and that you really needed your guitar when you were uh, you needed to express what you were feeling. And I I also I wonder if because I know that addiction is. There, there's something genetic about the tendency towards it, but do you feel like it it can be just as much of a high to complete something, to produce oh, something, to create something?
2: No question. That's a great a, a great statement. And um, yeah, I, I I'm in, I remember finishing a song last week, probably the final song of Rock Bottom, and it just came to me. I tried that instead of that, because it just wasn't fitting. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And I went to the piano and I just tried another way and boom, it was like that final piece in the Rubik's Cube and it was, wow. And I couldn't sleep. It was like Mm -hmm. I'd had a line of meth. I was like, wow. And I got up and played it again, played it again. And it's just, look, I'm 74 and I still get a, a kick out of creating Mm-hmm. of writing something that means something, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Whoever said it's 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration is absolutely right because mm-hmm. it it doesn't come easy. And I'm watching this guy, I've learned, uh, um, someone told me about this guy, Tommy Emmanuel, this guitarist who is incredible. I mean, am I hesitate to say about the best in music because it's all it's all linear, it's all mm-hmm. relative. But Tommy Emmanuel has done things on the acoustic guitar that just blew my mind. And he said a great thing. He said, I'm not in the music business, I'm in the happiness business. Oh. And if I can make you happy from my playing, then my job is done. And he practises every day, he's 68, he still practises two to three hours a day. So it's hard because until you get out there in front of an audience, there's only you and your garage band or whatever to hear back what you've created. But it's so worth it. And it's, music to me has become my Northern star. It pulls me through a lot of stuff. Uh, and I can't wait to, you know, every day to sit down and play guitar and play piano. I don't practice drums very much because that's kind of ingrained in me now. Um, but I, I just love playing music. Well, you know, it's kind of good that Paul
1: dropped out of the drug scene when he did, because that could have trashed his voice big time, but didn't. He was smart enough to get out of it before he did, right? Especially. Well, he has
2: a wonderful wife. Uh, Cynthia has uh, been so good to him. And, I mean, he stopped drinking many years ago. Uh, like most guys, you know, we were not good drunks. I don't know anyone who's a good drunk. No, no. I don't if there's any such thing. Um, but Paul... I never become... beat anybody
1: up, but I was an irritating son of a gun. I was tough to be around.
2: He's, you know, he's he's a wonderful singer. My God, he's he's still, you know, my, my favorite singer. You, you've uh, toured
0: with... Oh, did you want to say more about Paul?
2: Yeah. No, no. I mean, he's still my favorite singer. And, you know, uh, Bad Company's not really doing anything right now, even though we celebrate 50 years this year. Uh, I'm not really at liberty to say why we're not touring, but hopefully there'll be another tour in us. I know Frampton's doing a farewell tour, Aerosmith are doing a farewell tour. We're all saying goodbye. um
1: Yeah, there's serious money to be made in saying goodbye. I mean, the Eagles have know. been saying goodbye. I mean, they're making hideous amounts of money on tour. How
0: many farewell tours did Sinatra do? I mean, <laughs> right, right. Like nine. Yes, nine. Sinatra. Yeah. 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 So my question is. Have you noticed when you go out like with Ringo Starr and just go out with a, a bunch of these legendary guys? Have you noticed that there's like a personality type around drums or guitar or front men?
2: Oh, what a good question!
0: I, I, you know,
2: I know quite a few drummers. Obviously, because that's my number one instrument. That's what I'm known for. And all the drummers that I know are really nice guys. Mm-hmm. They really are. Maybe it's the fact that we... You get out it. all your anxiety <laughs> on you Yeah, we, we get rid of it. And, and I know Chad Smith. I know Greg Bissonet, I know Ringo. I know... I know... Um, uh, a Peace, You know, I used to know Bonzo. Bonzo was different. Bonzo <laughs> never, never got rid of his demons. His demons got rid of him, oh. unfortunately. <laughs> because Bonzo, when he was sober was a sweet cuddly bear of a guy and I I think about him just about every day I still miss him uh, but he was you know he was an alcoholic Gemini and uh, he was on a road to destruction but getting back to your question uh, yeah drummers are great they, they, guitarists are highly strung they're like <laughs> that's how they are. Um, pianists can do Sudoku in one minute. Right? <laughs> They're from another planet. Pianists, I, I adore. I'm so in awe of good piano players. There's a lady out there right now, a Chinese lady called Yuja J U J A Wang W A N G, and check her out. She is just mind-blowingly incredible. But you know, she's like, wow. So I. I don't know. It's it's hard to categorize people in certain different musical types, but um, yeah, that, that's as that's as much as I can do right now.
0: Yeah, I was just kind of wondering if maybe that there's something that draws you to a certain instrument, like you know, about your personality.
2: I I, I think the thing about drums is that it, it, it's it's a license when you're a kid to make a lot of noise and yeah. be like mm-hmm. like a, like most boys. Oh, I don't want to get sexist here because there's <laughs> incredible young lady drummers out there on youtube my god there's mm. a japanese girl who's about 12 now wow. and she does stuff that bonzo was doing <laughs> and i'm like what wow <laughs> uh, so you know this girl like good times bad times uh, by zeppelin and she does this amazing version and she's only 12 oh and she could barely touch the pedals <laughs> so it's a different world now yeah, let,
1: let me get one more question about bad company in here. Yeah. So Paul uh, Left bad he, company in 1986 and then he returned mm-hmm. In 1998 and that I, I I looked it up on the internet. That's the longest separation remarriage and remarriage in marriage history
2: <laughs> Yeah,
1: wow, I mean All seriously that, that, wow. that's unbelievable Yeah, um, but he had kids correct. He was the only one of you who had kids at the time and he had to stop.
2: Yes Yeah, he had kids he had Stephen and Jasmine in the mid, yeah, in the early and mid seventies. I didn't have kids until uh, eighty-two. When my I had three daughters in quick, fairly quick succession. So yeah, he was a father pretty young age. Yeah,
1: talk about your uh, talent in uh, music uh, in uh, film composition scoring.
2: Well, yeah, thanks. I I I ever since I was. really watching movies I've always thought wow you know that music goes really well with that or "Mm, no I don't like that I've had this sort of discerning uh, nature about uh, images and music and I had a chance to score a couple of independent movies uh, in the last couple of years and I loved it and one of the highlights of my life was when I sent a little piece uh, uh, the director sent me a uh, a clip of about two minutes and i put what i hoped would be right and he wrote back and said this is incredible exclamation point Aww. twice and went, oh man so that's really you know as my uh career my performing career sets in in the west you know i've had a great run that's really what i'd, I'd like to get into yeah, apart from songwriting i'll always do songwriting but I would really like to get into scoring movies. And it's just, there's just something about looking at the screen and, and putting what I think is right. Um, and and I met one of the greats who only lives near me. I, I'm in Long Island, um, Carter Burwell, who does all the, uh, the Coen Brothers movies. Yeah. And he's great. Wow. He's, he's so charming and easy to get along with. But he has this tiny rig. He's got one keyboard and a little Yeah, you can do it all
1: electronically. You don't have to go in front of the Boston Philharmonic. to. Correct. And you can do it from your little thing. Like, uh, what's his name? The guy from Nine Inch Nails is doing it. Does it all on one keyboard, the whole? I didn't know. Oh. um, What's his name? uh, Trent Reznor. Yeah, Trent Trent Reznor. Our resident headbanger just spoke up. (laughs) Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor. Yeah.
0: Yeah that's yeah. that that is exciting and and there's all sorts of ways for people to find each other movies that need scoring and then you finding them and then finding you there's and it, it, you know to me, the internet sort of explains the twelve year old that you were describing because she's able to find all the influences that interest her, whereas you were limited to that that radio that you had. Yeah. In your little town, bumped up against Wales, right? So that was that was it, and you were probably starving for whatever else you could get your hands on. And now kids can just go as deep as they want to go in terms of finding.
2: Well, it's it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's a triple-edged sword. Yeah. is the internet because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's the most incredible tool, and yet it's uh, you know it can be a portal to a really dark dark side and. I, you know, for me, the jury is still out on the Internet. I love it, but sometimes I hate it as well. But, uh, you know, we, we live in that age and there's no way around it. We have to live with it and accept it. And and when I see kids in Manhattan or wherever I go now, everyone is on their phone, everyone. And and I I, I admit that without my phone, I'd be pretty well lost. And, and people who say, oh, I'm off the grid for a week. I go, wow, how did you do it, man? You know, we're stuck with it. That's just uh, code
0: for I dropped my phone in the toilet <laughs> and I ordered maybe. a new one.
2: Yeah, maybe. You maybe. know, um,
1: for, for such a hard rocking band, it's just this wonderful uh, driving beat that you guys had. You also uh, flirted with some lovely country. And you wrote hmm. one of the beautiful country songs that Bad Company did called Oh, Atlanta.
2: And uh am I right about that? Well, I didn't write it, Mick Ralphs wrote it. Oh, I thought and you wrote it. It was covered by Alison Krauss. Oh. Although I, I do have um a, a couple of my solo albums have have quite a few country imp- I I love country music. Mm-hmm. What about Evil Wind? Was that that was a Bad Company song, right? That was a Bad Company song. That was the one song where I Got to do a, a drum solo oh, that was cool. Paul Bridges. he evil win, but country is huge. And, and i good country is well, look, modern country is like rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see, um, Garth Brooks now, he has dry eyes, he has strobe lights. <laughs> I know, you know, it's yeah. the whole thing, it's uh, the whole deal, yeah. They, Modern Country is is very, very good. And Vince Gill is one of my favorite Oh, guitarists. God, what oh a voice. my God, I love him so much. I think
1: he's out with the Eagles now, right? Is it, it, he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Unbelievable. So I know you're not allowed to say a lot about it, because if you did, you would have to kill us. Uh-oh. But tell us, just give us a little about uh, your thoughts about a memoir, which would be unbelievable.
2: Well, I've written a memoir, and, and I didn't write it for the money, because the money I was offered was pretty paltry. And it's, it's not... Uh, it, I, I guess I wanted to write it to put my, in a chronological order, put my life out there in mean, black and white. I've sent it to two people in my life, and, and they're both in the literary world, and they say it's one of the best rock and roll memoirs they've ever uh, read. Wow. Um That being said, I'm not really, the thing about it, guys, is there's a lot of sex and there's a lot of drugs. Oh, that's whole rock and that's awful. Which is what publishers want because they want to make money, and and sex sells, drug sell, rock and roll sells. So that's okay. But it would be a little embarrassing for my girls, um, for my ex-wife, wives, uh my current wife. I don't really want to upset people for, you know, whatever advance I would get or royalties I would get. It's it's not really worth it. I did it as a cathartic exercise, mm-hmm. and. It's got some great moments in it. I mean, I've had a wonderful life. There's, I'm, it's, I'm going to call it. There's a lion in the living room, <laughs> and I thought that would get your attention. It so does. I, will, <laughs> I will explain that. It's the only story I will tell you if you've got time. Oh, yes, we do. So I was <laughs> back in my druggy days. Uh, I met a drug dealer in Tramps, which was a famous club in London. And he was living in Spain. He was an English guy. No, he was an American guy. And he said, I live in in Spain, just outside Madrid. I want you to come, you know, come and stay with me. So uh, with my my then wife and a a girlfriend, we went to see this guy. And we got met by this chauffeur driven limo in Madrid airport. And we went on this long drive and we got there. up in this huge mountain. And there was this wonderful estate on uh, on the top of this mountain outside Madrid. And we got in, he wasn't there. Apparently he was out for the afternoon, something had come. So the maid said, you know, make yourself at home, la la la, some lunch. So my wife and the girlfriend went to have a sleep and a rest, and I'm digging into my salad. And I suddenly heard this, <laughs> Bloody Wow. Hell what's that? And I heard it again. So I sort of peeked through the sliding windows into this enormous garden. And there is a lion, <laughs> fully grown female lion on a chain with a, a long, on, on a long steel hawser running the width of the garden. And I, I was, she was beautiful. It was so beautiful. But it was about three in the afternoon and it was boiling hot. I noticed two large bowls completely empty. I assumed one was for water, one was for food. But this poor animal was baking and obviously very thirsty and very hungry. So I thought, oh, what the hell? So I went out and, you know, I'm not a very brave guy. And she was at the other end of her wire. So I gently got the two bowls before she could sort of pad up to see who was in her domain and sure enough they were completely empty i went into the the the, the kitchen filled one with water asked the maid carne carne parallel you know <laughs> meat for the lion oh yeah yeah in the fridge so i so I got the meat, and i went out with these two bowls and i put it very gently just and she this lion came up and she had the biggest green yellow eyes and she came out and she started wolfing the food down and the whatever. And of course I became her boyfriend. (laughs) And every time the next couple of days, she would like raw. And Jonathan, the guy came back in the evening. He said, Oh, she likes you. I said, of course he bloody likes me because I've given (laughs) her food and water. You know, you can't leave an animal like that. It's just an animal. He was not a nice guy. Anyway, I'll wrap it up. So (laughs) I had to make a call to my uh, accountant in London one afternoon, everyone had gone into Madrid to do some shopping. I didn't want to go shopping, um, so I'm on the phone to my accountant, lovely lady Joan, and I'm saying, hey, Joan. Yes, yes. Well, you know, invest that, and you know." And I suddenly felt this nip <laughs> in my. In my bum, I'm wearing shorts because it's a hot day and swimming trunks. And I look around, and bloody hell, it's the the, the lion. She suddenly s- somehow slipped her leash, nudged open the door, and padded over to see her her guy. Yeah. Right. And I'm looking at these enormous green yellow eyes, and I said, uh, "Joan, I- I'm going to have to go.
0: I'll call you back."
2: There's a lion in the living room. And, wow. Um, I managed, and then, you know, I hung up, and then Druma, her name was Drummer. she got up on her hind legs and put her paws. Oh, my chair. God. No, no, uh, no claws, just a paws, because she liked me and gave me a big lick Aww. with a sandpaper tongue. And I let her out, you know, I thought, she's going to, you know, one swipe of those talons, you know, yeah. I'm dead. So I gently put her in the shade and gave her some more water. And that was uh,
0: that. That was that story. Wow! Wow!
2: That nice. Is... So there's a lion in the living room.
0: That is your title, man. That's it, buddy. <laughs> you're good. Yeah. All right. Hey, listen.
1: Thank you for um, before we wrap up. I just want to thank you for just all the great sound you put in the universe, and also thank you for the good work you're doing on behalf of of addicts you. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's using your talent to you. uh, a pleasure uh, an
2: interview is only as good as its questions and it's uh, questionnaires and I, I do i do appreciate it
0: well we, More we one love one talking pleasure. to you simon thank you so much for joining us we're going to have all the pertinent links in our show notes here come your credits thank you so much for joining us we would love to continue this conversation with you on instagram and twitter where we are at MediaPath pod and on facebook where our show page is Media Path podcast and our facebook group is MediaPath with fritz and wheezy podcast community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at Podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts. We would love that. You can sign up for our spicy little newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com It only comes your way and. In- Bugs your inbox once a week. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Simon Kirk. Our team includes producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I'm Louise Polanker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.